hey, how about 20 years of ministry, and God celebrates it by giving us a hurricane. Come on. Talk about memorable. Remember that, our 20th anniversary? Yeah, the hurricane. It all works. Makes me think about, you know, some of my seaworthy experiences and uh, the ocean. Uh, have you ever floated down like a river in an inflatable boat? Anybody? Uh, maybe a raft, maybe you had a little octopus thing that belongs in a pool, but you did it in the river anyway. Anyway, I took a little boat, little Zodiac, down the Merced River, right in central Yosemite Valley, 3,000-foot cliffs around you, waterfalls, Yosemite Falls over here, wildlife, one of the most beautiful spots on planet Earth. It was incredible. The next time I did it, I brought my same boat back, but didn't realize it had a leak. And so about halfway through, I sank like the Titanic, right? And all those people floating with octopi were coming by and helping me in this most embarrassing moment as I was right in the midst of the rapids and floundering in the water. It was fabulous. But the key to boating was really impressed upon me, right? You want the water on the outside of the boat and you want it dry on the inside. Anybody with me? That's pretty much it. That's the key. Sometimes the struggle, though, when you're boating is the boat itself is, you know, leaky. Sometimes it's because the water is dangerous or unstable. So either one of those is deadly, but here's the key. When it's both the boat and both the unstable seas, now you're in trouble, real trouble. And let me tell you right now, every one of you sitting here this morning, you're in trouble. Because we are, we are existing in unstable seas, and most of the boats that are to keep us afloat are really, really struggling. In fact, you and I are sailing in very dangerous waters. Romans 1 tells us what God's about right now. He's giving people over to greater sin. That's how his wrath is being expressed on planet Earth. He starts with overt lust, and then it, it, it graduates to the, the uh, sin of homosexuality, and then it ultimately ends up being that there is a depraved mind, and we are seeing a depraved mind. Listen, with the flag of the LGBTQ flying over the White House, we are existing in depraved minds. When you understand when our legal systems, school systems, and news media are pushing against every biblical conviction that we treasure, we are in dangerous waters. Would you agree with that? Our world is pressing every single Christian in this room to not believe that God made only two genders, to not believe that homosexuality is a moral perversion, to not believe that criminals are responsible for their actions, to not believe that police are servants of God in society, and to not believe that pride and selfishness are actually sin. That's the world we live in. We sail in dangerous waters today. But if the rough seas of the world were not bad enough, the boats that we desperately need to float through these deadly cultural waters are leaking and crumbling and sinking. It's the local church that is actually the boat that floats on the dangerous waters of this world. It's the local church. And today churches are falling apart. They're drifting from truth. They're crashing on the rocks of false doctrine. They're losing their purpose. They're marring their witness. They're ignoring their captain, and they're sinking in the midst of the storm. 
and it's going on again and again and again repeatedly. So how do we stay afloat as an individual Christian, as a family, and as a church? How do we follow our captain? How do we make a difference in today's stormy sea? How to make the local church not shipwreck, but to be strong and certain and not swamp and not sink and, and not leak and lose her way? Well, today, after our Old Testament wonderful summer series, and after Sean's message last week, and before we start the Sermon on the Mount next week, I wanted to make sure that we shored up our local church and develop some convictions about the local church, sometimes for some of you to fortify the convictions you already have on this most important anniversary Sunday. We want to do that. You need to know why you gather. You need to be reminded of what it takes to stay afloat. You need to know how to follow our captain in stormy seas and the price that you might pay. You need to pursue what's required for each of you to keep the church really healthy and strong. You need to grow in your affection for his bride. And you need to be helping other people know what a healthy church is and be able to articulate exactly what you mean by what you say because they're confused. Everybody thinks they're healthy. What is a spiritually healthy local assembly? What's going to keep any church and our church healthy, afloat, seaworthy, on course? We only have time to go through six of them on this anniversary Sunday. There's about 20 to 25 of them, okay? So let me emphasize these. There are no particular order, so stay with me in your outline. You ready? Number one, number one, commit to follow your spiritual fathers. Turn, if you would, if you have your Bible, Please, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Even though it's in your outline, I want you to turn there and look at it. Churches are weak when they're led by only one person. Churches are leaky when their leaders are merely wealthy businessmen or doctors or lawyers or CEOs first instead of men who actually live out five crucial convictions, five of them. Let me give them to you. They're in your outline, and I want you to know them because these are vital to explaining a healthy local church. One would be they're set apart by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by the church family. You know what that means? God chooses your leaders. We're just recognizing whom God chose. Be qualified in character so that they are men who are trustworthy, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. They need to also be shepherds with a massive love for people. You're not hearing me. You're already tuning me out. Elders need to be amidst God's people. They're not separate from them. They are a part of them. And they have to have an incredible affection for people. And if they don't, then 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5 would say they shouldn't be an elder. Men also who uphold and instruct sound doctrine and the direction of the church, Titus 1.9, they're exhorting sound doctrine, they're refuting to those who contradict, and those who seek, are you ready? This is so important. Christ's will first as head of the church over their own desires, over their own denomination, over their own church even direction. They want what Christ wants for that church body more than anything they want. Are you tracking with me? That is one of the most vital elements that the headship of Christ and churches will take on water when they don't have leadership who pursue those five requirements. God designed that it would be men who lead their homes, men who lead the church, and men who preach the word and services. Both elders and husbands function as the head of their family and the head of the church family under the headship of Christ. The entire focus of the leadership structure, are you ready, is so that they can best determine what Jesus wants. 
Who's the head of the church? Christ. Christ. We're trying to figure out to make sure that we stay that way. Now, most of that's established by doctrine. But so much of it is also led by prayer and dependence as he guides us in those areas that are, you know, beyond the, in the sense of the boundaries of doctrine and how we function and how we prioritize. Elders do not control the church like uh, employers and employees. Elders don't make decisions like a board of directors. Elders don't write you a ticket when you step out of line like some sort of deputy Elders shepherd their church family like a father shepherds his own children. That's how God designed it. That's why it's interconnected with the family itself. Each church is unique. Each elder is unique. But they are to function as one, seeking the one will of Christ who is the leader and the head of the church. Now, some elders will be gifted as preachers and equippers. Others uh, will be gifted teachers. Some of them will have the gifts, are you ready for this, of compassion and, and faith. They, they will just look and they, they have incredible heart for people. Uh, others will, with unique discernment, some with super strong discipleship or gifted in wisdom, and what I just gave you, as I described how they're gifted differently, that's our eldership. I just went through each man and said, this is what they're like. This is what they bring to the table. And when we get together, it, instead of their uniqueness being a, a, a divisiveness as a plurality, we desire Christ to lead. And what that means is that the uniqueness of each one of the elders is then another way for us to understand who Christ is and what Christ wants for us. Are you tracking with me? As we listen to the way he made us, we better understand his will for the church family. It is so common today, and sometimes the churches that you're dealing with or people that you're talking to, that churches start to sink when they take the approach that elders can believe different theological positions on major issues. Uh, local churches scuttle when elders are just yes-men to the senior pastor. That's why we don't have one. Local churches leak when the fathers of the flock don't shepherd the body or function, even though they're imperfect and though they're way flawed, as examples for others to follow. And local churches break apart on the rocks when elders make their preferences into principle. When they choose to take what's best for their own family or their own lives or what they want over the church family, that's not an elder. An elder must say, I only want what Christ wants more than anything. Elders, again, are those people who are Paul's first concern. When you read the New Testament, you see in Titus chapter 1, 5, the local church was filled with qualified functioning called elders who want Christ's will above their own. Listen, there wasn't a local church until they appointed elders. Then they became a local church. And yet, it is a fearful thing to become an elder. That's why you're now at Hebrews 13, 17. Take a look at it, as well as in your outline, and listen to what he says. He says, obey your leaders and what? Oh, that's good for you to say. Submit to them. And yet, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Wow. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Ouch. Elders will give an account to God for their church family. They will answer to him for you. 
Pray for your elders then. Pray for them. Seek to mature like an elder. Get trained here so you can become an elder here or at a church plant or somewhere else and talk to your elders. Know who they are. Uh, We're a family. We need each other. We listen to one another as a family should. It's not a top-down experience. There is only one king we want to honor and obey. And so therefore, we know that the Spirit of God works through the people of God. We know that. So talk to them. Boats that float well need qualified seamen, qualified you know, lieutenants who follow their captain above anyone. Super key. Number two in your outline. Pursue serving one another into a loving community. Pursue love, serving one another into a loving community. Local churches begin to sink when the truth of sacrificing yourself, investing into others through discipleship, and the commitment of faithful weekly ministry, all of a sudden that's now defined as something only for the committed and not the common Christian. As soon as it becomes only for the committed, it wipes out the church. Listen, Christians are all being sanctified. And understand, write this down. That's the process where the Holy Spirit makes you more like Christ. Sanctification. Conformed, the passages, Romans 8, to the image of the Son. Paul prays that Christ would be formed in you. That's the sanctification process. And when you become like Christ, you will be and do what Christ did. And that means you will become a servant. Was Christ a servant? Yes or no? Christ came to serve. He said the greatest among you will be the servant. It's different than the world. It really is. When you have Christ, you don't love others with mere feelings. You don't merely love others with words. You love others with sacrificial action. It actually costs you. And that's what sets the church apart. Could the Apostle John be more pointed? Take a look at 1 John 3, verse 18. Look at it. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in what? Deed and truth. You love with deeds according to truth. That's how we love. You understand what a sacrifice is? Sacrifices, you want to write this down, are deeds which cost you. They're they're offered to the Lord, but they're deeds that cost you. You give up time at home. Your budget feels the pinch. Your time is more packed. You have less hang with friends. You're not as much vacationing because it costs you. David had the right heart when buying the property for the future temple. The seller offered the property to the king for free. So how did David respond? Now, how I would respond to that is, Costco free sample, I'm all over it. If it's free, it's for me, man. Such a deal, such a deal. Listen, David had God's heart, and it's recorded for us in the Word, and it's 2 Samuel 24, 24. However, the king said to Ara, who offered this land for free, where they were going to build the, tabernacle, the, te- the temple, Solomon's temple, he said, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not Offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me what? Nothing. So David bought the threshing floor. Why don't we offer the Lord nothing or our leftovers or our freebies or our extras? 
or that which is not a personal sacrifice without cost? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him we live, who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ suffered and sacrificed for us so that we might live for him. Christ even gifted you to serve so you might glorify God in a unique way in his church. Now, 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 and 11 tells us a spiritual gift. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Again, you have received a special giftedness. Giftedness, spiritual gifts, are God-given abilities for service to the body for the body. Every time they're defined, they're to the body for... Are they for the world? Are your gifts for the world? Yes or no? No, they are for the body of Christ. And you only learn your unique combination of giftedness by serving, talking honestly with those you serve. And even though it costs you with occasional weariness and difficulty, the end result is purpose and joy in your heart that is overwhelming. It's almost humorous to me. And this has been asked of me multiple times. We're speculating on how many services we're going to have when we get to the new property. People are going, Chris, Chris, can you preach four sermons? Yes! I can, and I will, with massive joy. Now, when you call me at 1.30 on Sunday afternoon, I'll be napping, okay? <laughs> it's going to cost me, but it's the, it's the price you pay that you love. Do you understand that? It's the joy of doing what God made you to do. Understand, does your Christianity regularly cost you time, heart concern, labor, preparation. And yes, love your neighbors, love your unsaved family, love your secular friends, yes, but never forget and always remember Paul's exhortation about who is the priority. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to how many people? All people. Say it again. How many people? All people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith especially your church family, especially serve those in your church family. Our love for one another shown in service and sacrifices is to be so overwhelming, it is not only obvious, it is intense. And that's what Jesus meant in John chapter 13 to 35 when he said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. And again, sacrifice, deeds. Love is the glue that holds the ship together. It's the glue that keeps us afloat, that keeps us from cracking and leaking. The core of this church family is the most loving I have ever experienced. It's unbelievable. But even as I say that, even as I affirm you, and you are, Paul steps in. You know what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9? He says, now as to the love of the brethren, verse 10, excel still what? more. Some of you have been abused in the church. Others of you are taught poorly. Some of you actually were affirmed by church leadership as you merely attended church. And that was okay. That was good. That must not be. That's not good. Listen, friends, the church is not a cruise ship. It's not a cruise ship. 
were 20% served to 80%. I, we took our kids, Matthew, my son, and, uh, and his wonderful wife, Danielle, on a cruise with some inheritance money, and we had a steward, and his name was Rex. Rex fluffed our pillows. He cleaned our bathrooms. He made our beds. He picked up trash on the floor. Rex doted over us for this entire week that we were on. We came back, and for six months, we looked at each other going, where's Rex? We need Rex. Where is he? Wow, it was awesome. Some people, they come to church, where's Nigel? He'll fix it. Church is not a a cruise ship. We equip you to do the work of ministry. You know what the church is? The church is a battleship. It's a battleship. Your captain is Christ, and we are at war, Ephesians chapter 6. We're sailing in rough seas, and each one of you has a job to do, and our skipper will guide us to victory, but it will require every single sailor to do their job. No exceptions. Age, injury, it doesn't matter. Senior, junior, higher, mom of four, busy dad, doesn't matter. We will not stay afloat unless every single one of us obeys our great captain and loves each other enough to do our Christ-assigned job for this community. That's how we sail strong in difficult waters. Number three, experience the joy of sacrificial giving. Experience the joy of sacrificial giving. When I think of giving, I think of three biblical truths. First, you cannot give God. Now listen to this. This is going to sound crazy. Like you're, you, know, you turn to Channel 40 and you're watching the wacky Christian channel. The more you give, the more you're blessed in return. The more you give, the more you bless in return. Literally, that's not health wealth. That's biblical truth. God will meet your needs abundantly and give back to givers with abundant blessing and joys. He says even in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, both Old and New Testament affirm this truth. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. I have now for 42 years a very close friend and a wife who both have the gift of giving. And I have made it my goal. I'm not kidding. My goal to outgive them. And I have tried multiple times to outgive them. And just when I think I've got the giver edge and I'm winning, they come up with some way to bless me in some other way. And I can't win because you can't outgive the givers. Are you tracking with me on this? That's exactly what Jesus Christ is to you. You cannot outgive him with that he will not lavish you with you. With, with incredible blessing. There are Christians who never discover that blessing because they won't give by faith and trust God to take care of them. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. He gives away, he gets all the more. And there's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in what? Want. Lack. Secondly, Giving accomplishes great things for the Lord's glory. Listen, we as a church, you need to understand, this is a secret. You love secrets. Here's a secret. We never talk about getting more money. We never do. In 20 years, it has never come up. Well, I wasn't here the first two and a half. But in 17 and a half years, it's never come up. See, why? Because we're not talking about money. We all talk about ministry. 
we dream about more ministry, about equipping more people, about evangelizing more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, establishing more churches, sending more missionaries, seeing more ministry in our midst to strengthen you and to have it be where God is glorified in all of that. And sometimes those gospel-driven ministries, those equipping ministries cost money. We will continue and never stop training men and training women, both through discipleship, in classes, and in the training center, and future pastors and elders through the master seminary extension that exists here at FBC right now. We continue to send missionaries. Terrell's on the docket. Jesse's out the door soon. Others, I know, don't, don't, don't freak out, youth ministry people. Okay? It, it's happening. And it'll, it'll be, you know, in time, a year maybe or whatever. But they're going. We're going to send them. We believe churches should birth churches, church planting. You know, don't you love it when we announce new births up on the screen? Isn't that great? You know that those are incredible. Those are great celebrations. But every one of those little kids that are up on the screen costs a lot of money. Have you noticed that? I don't know what that is. They're expensive. Little brats. Um... <laughs> You need to know, we would love to see 10 FBCs in Southern California, in the U.S. and overseas in the next 20 years. 10. We're dreaming, but we want to see it happen. And maybe even one in, in you know, Messhousey and Hemet. I mean, it could happen. We invest in student camps. We will continue to do so because you hear it in the testimonies every year how they came to saving faith at a camp. We will use our outreach camps to take place on our campus in the future, like Vacation Bible School, a children's sing camp, ways to reach the lost. We desire to use our campus to love and to reach out to specialty groups like police departments, teachers, doctors, fires, and maybe one or two lawyers who don't already have the mark of the beast on them, you know, that kind of thing, to reach out to them. Yeah, there's one or two here. That was for you, Kathy. So we've talked about, and Jason, <clears throat> we've talked about ministry of the physically challenged. And we're awaiting a permanent building for that, but that hope is on the horizon. We want to continue to support our missionaries in a big way, in a high level, having very few that we support relationally, but we do so personally with teams, with conferences, financially in a big way. We, we really own our missionaries. Our property will eventually have missionary housing on campus. Sadly, I think that's in phase 53 of the building project. Unless you give that huge gift that we're praying for, Okay, you're just holding out. You got that 15 million. You're ready to throw it in. Right, let's go. Time is now. We've discussed schooling option with our parents ad nauseum to the point we want to minister with our children. We're starting a pilot program this January and then a full co-op by next fall. Further schooling efforts will require building completion as well as rezoning. But the happy news is this. The Lord has already all the money he needs. Amen. The struggle is it's all in your pockets, okay? That's the struggle. It's anniversary Sunday. We're being friendly here. Okay. It requires burning hearts, passion, and prayer. So Philippians 4, verse 16, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift for more than once for my needs, Paul says. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases for your account. What he's saying is our giving is, is a blessing to the giver. Giving is a blessing to the giver, and giving is the fuel that allows our ship to reach new people in new places. It's money directed for what? Ministry. And that's what drives us as a church. That's what drives us. Thirdly, giving is a reflection of your heart. 
You can't get around it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. They're connected. So many of you faithfully give online. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. That is fantastic. But the Lord would say this. Don't merely give online and neglect your joy. Annually, check what you give. Adjust what you give every year. Believe God to assist you to give joyously and sacrificially and maybe more every year. That's been my goal since I've been here. I've got a gift of giving wife. She keeps me on track, and that's what we do. And many of you need to begin to faithfully give online. Every biblical financial teacher I know says even when you're in debt, start giving faithfully. That's the start to getting healthy with your finances. And just because we don't take an offering as a church doesn't mean you're not supposed to give one. Giving is a reflection of your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one must do as he's purposed in his own heart. This is between you and the Lord, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a what? You want to do this because you believe in eternity, you believe in heaven, you believe this is eternal, you believe that it's in ministry, you believe it's not being wasted here, that we're seeking to do greater things for his glory. Number four, develop convictions over God's word. Develop convictions over God's word. The Bible are the stars by which we navigate our oceans. All right? Uh, What does he say in Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word brings about faith. It gives spiritual life. It causes us to mature. It sanctifies us. It convicts us. It frees us. It refreshes us. It renews us. Are you ready for this? The Bible what? Revives us. It revives us. We must stick to the word no matter how counterculture it is. Some of you came from churches where the word was being compromised in a big way. And here at FBC, we, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, want to preach the word ready in season, out of season, no matter when it's fun, when it's not, when it's easy, when it's hard. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure what? That's healthy doctrine, making you like Christ, but they'll want to have their ears tickled, make me feel good. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Hey, I just want to get the guys that say what I want to hear and turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. But at FBC, we want to be like Nehemiah 8.8. Nehemiah 8.8, they read from the book of the law translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. We want you to understand the Bible as God intended it. Like Nehemiah, we want you to only hear God's word as he intended. Every verse, listen, write this down, in the Bible only has one correct meaning. Every verse in the Bible. And we want to determine the author's intended message for every verse. From there, we determine our doctrine. From those doctrinal beliefs, we determine our behavior. Our doctrinal statement is very specific. It's not generic. And we believe that it reflects the teaching of Scripture. We believe that our doctrinal statement is submissive to the Scripture, and it will be altered whenever it is corrected by correct exegesis through the Scripture. So at FBC, we're pressing you to develop convictions. Listen, it's easy to have convictions in this room, is it not? A whole lot easier. When you're at work and you're at school and you're in your neighborhood, that's when convictions will make a big difference. That's when it does. And we need you to develop convictions about what God teaches, no matter what comes, no matter what the cost, no matter what, no compromise. No compromise, right? 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. They did not. And we're not going to bow down. We believe the Bible teaches that there are no man-centered psychology. There's no sign gifts. We believe that the Bible teaches there are serving and speaking gifts. There's no covenantal spiritualing of the text, spiritualizing of the text. There's no deviation from substitutionary atonement. There's no women elders, no women pastor, teacher, preachers, no distinct roles in the sense of two distinct roles, and that men lovingly lead their homes and lovingly lead this church. Men primarily minister to men. Women primarily minister to women powerfully, dramatically. No embracing of immorality. No legitimizing homosexuality or other perversions. We believe the world is getting worse, not better. We don't embrace what the experts say, what science says, what preachers says, what bloggers say, what podcasters say. When they teach, write, speak, contrary to the Bible. Are you tricking it? It doesn't matter who says it. If it contradicts the word, we reject it. We will not compromise. We will not bow down. And we will not burp and go on. You know what that means? You see a verse that's really dicey and slicey and hard to understand, and we go, and you just move on. We will not be skipping difficult issues. We don't. Churches run aground and sink when they ignore or distort the Word of God. And listen, friends, you go, Chris, you're just preaching to the choir here. No, I'm not. I'm preaching to our community because our community is crumbling. Recently at Rancho Church, Scott Treadway preached a sermon where he clearly denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Do you understand what that means? He denied that Jesus died for your sins. He denies the fact that he was your substitute and took God's wrath on your behalf. He called it human sacrifice. He mocked it out of love for him and for Rancho. John Plesnick and I met with him face to face, and he affirmed to my shock several times, that that's exactly what he believes. And though there are a few others on staff at Rancho who believe substitutionary atonement, this is a devastating drift from the gospel of Jesus Christ and a violation of the word of God. Passage after passage after passage affirm the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Just read Romans. You can't even understand Romans unless you believe in substitutionary atonement. That Christ died for us. This is devastating. It's considered heresy by the apostles, considered heresy by the reformers, and a true believer must not remain under that doctrinal error. You cannot stay there. If you stay there, you're affirming that. You can't do it. So immerse yourself. Don't want to be here? Fine. Immerse yourself in a true gospel sound doctrine local church. FBC Menifee, Jake Dietrich is awesome. Redeemer Bible Church, Temecula Hills, Valley Christian Fellowship. They are staying true to the word of God. I love those churches. Myself, our elders, next generation of leaders of FBC will not move from the church. We will not compromise even if we go to jail, even if it means the end of meeting publicly. We will not. Do you understand that? You need to be ready for that. You say, Chris, you sound above it. We're not above it. It's just not in our DNA. We're the simple church that says, whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take it normatively and follow what he says. 
You, though, need to develop convictions in your private conversations, in your conversations at work, in your conversations at school over truth and in order to not run aground in the world's way of thinking. Remember, beliefs are what you hold, but convictions are what hold you. You want to be in a situation where you're going, no, the Bible teaches this, that's where I stand. And God help me. I'm like Martin Luther, I'll take whatever comes. Are you tracking? That's where we're at, friends, and you got to get there. Otherwise, we're going to run aground as a church. Number five and six go quickly. Number five, embrace all the practices of a Bible-obeying church. Okay, there are practices that make our ship run smoothly. It's like the engine that keeps things flowing well in stormy waters. What are some? You know, one is gathering together every week and then gathering in households. Did you know the New Testament church, you know what they did? They gathered every week on Saturday, Sunday, first Saturday, then Sunday, and then they met throughout the week in house to house. That's what we do. We gather on Sunday. We meet in community groups or ministries. That's what we do. How consistent will you be to gathering on Sunday and in the middle of the week? Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of Don't be that. Don't just circle that word and go, no, don't be the sum. But encouraging one another as you, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What are some of those other habits? Discipleship. Discipleship is simply an intentional relationship or relationships for the purpose of seeing someone come to know Christ or seeing someone grow to be like Christ. And you're now growing together, man to man, woman to woman. That's discipleship, intentional relationships for the purpose of growth. Prayer, we need to be a praying church, dependent communication with your heavenly Father to align yourself with His will. We're trying to figure out what does He want and do what He wants. Church discipline, that's the loving process of pursuing only those who are in defiant sin. Everybody trips up, but when somebody goes, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, then we run after them and love them to repentance. Membership, the commitment to live one heart, one mind as a church family under the leadership. One heart, one mind. Listen, we have people been here 15 years and they finally become a member. We're like, what? And they're so embarrassed. They're going, oh, shucks. You know, hey, when it gets weird, when it gets tense, when persecution hits, you want to be a member. If you want to be a part of the local church, you want to be a member and belong and make that commitment. Communion, that's our regular remembering of Christ on a hopefully weekly basis coming soon. Our unity, our own sinfulness, examining our hearts, if anything's in between that and our relationship with the Lord as we celebrate his sacrifice in his death and resurrection on our behalf. Evangelism, that's pretty simple. You're sharing the message that Christ died for our sins. And... That he rose from the dead on behalf, and we try to back it up with a life that's following Christ and demonstrates Christ. Baptism, that's for adult believers. That's for every true believer, that first step of obedience, to identify with their immersion in Christ, their immersion into the church. Babies were never baptized in the other church because baptism is an expression of belief where you're willing to forsake your family, you're willing to forsake your friends to follow Christ. It was a public declaration that I now follow Christ. It wasn't for infants. It was a public declaration. And each of these and more will keep us moving in the right direction. Number six in your outline. So important. Growing in our awareness of our sinfulness and our desperate need for Christ every day. Do you, are you here today and really believe in your own heart of hearts 
that you desperately need Jesus Christ every single day? Are you a sinner? You're a saint who sins if you're a Christian. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I sometimes am surprised by my own tainted motives, selfish desires, proud thoughts, rebellious practices. Are you? I sometimes shock myself with my willingness and readiness to rebel. Anybody with me? Our neighborhood, just about three weeks ago, sent out a snarky note. You ever get those from your HOA? Snarky. It was this. Don't put your trash can so close together so that the trash can trash man can't grab it. You want to make sure you separate them by a foot so the you know the hooks can come in and collect the trash. But it wasn't written like, hey, you know, can I it was snarky. And I read that and, and I don't respond well to snarkiness. Anybody with me on that? You know, people can tell me anything, but when they get snarky, I get sarcastic. And have you noticed? So I'm sitting there, and I'm literally, I'm bringing the barrels out to the side of the street, and you know what I want to do? I want to separate them by literally, and I could have done this, 30 feet apart. That was my plan. And the only reason I didn't do it is because my neighbors are going, what are they doing their cans over there like that? You know, I, I didn't want to have a bad testimony, so I didn't do it. And I realized, what an evil rebel I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. I truly am the chief of sinners. And I need Jesus Christ every day. Every day in salvation. Every day in sanctification through His Spirit and to bring me home to heaven in glorification. And so do you. Take this home, would you? What will mess you up? What will sink you as a Christian and us as a church. Let me summarize this with some very pointed thoughts. Letter A. What's going to sink you as a Christian is not believing that culture Christianity is actually hateful to Christ. Let me say it again. Not believing that culture Christianity is actually hateful to Christ. This will wipe you out. You say, what do you mean? It is massively okay in most churches for you to occasionally attend, give a little, serve a little, interconnect a little, be nice, be safe, be average Christian. Let me make this really clear. It is not okay with the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what we think. It's not okay with him. He is not okay with give a little, serve a little, interconnect a little. He's not You say, where do you get that? Revelation chapter 3. What's he say in verse 13? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will what? Spit you out of my mouth. Write this down. Be warned. Here it is. Marginal believing is mostly make-believing. Marginal believing is mostly make-believing. The Lord goes on to tell these church attenders in Revelation chapter 3 that they're wretched and blind, needing the white clothes of righteousness. In other words, they need to be saved. Do you? True Christians are committed to Christ. That's not spiritual makey-uppiness. That's right out of Luke 14. That's right out of the Bible everywhere. You'll die to self, you'll pick up your cross, and you will what? Follow Christ. A true Christian wants to obey Christ. 
Will you fail? Yes or no? Will you blow it often? Yes or no? Yes, but you will follow Christ. What will sink you as a church? Sink, sink us as a church and you as a Christian. Let her be thinking only of yourself or your family and making the church community an extra or optional. Relationships can often be messy, hurtful, and difficult. They are. They're bloody. But they're exactly what Christ designed for you to mature. That's for you junior hires. That's for you high schoolers in youth ministry. You get hurt by your friends. You needed that so you could grow. You get hurt by a Christian, ignored by somebody, somebody offends you. You needed that so you could grow, so you could learn to forgive, so you could learn to deal with that. That's how you grow mature. That's how you do it. Not being a part of the community, not being a part of the mission of the church, not being a part of the relationships for gospel and growth is not God's will. It is not. You're not here merely to raise a family. You're here to be an integral part of a community that grows together, one another's each other, witnesses the loss by how we love each other, invest man to man, woman to woman, couple to couple, <clears throat> and seeing all that in discipleship as not extra, but expected. Not extra, expected. What'll mess you up as a church? Letter C, retreating from culture out of fear or fighting to right the culture instead of being broken over your sin and evangelizing the culture. Our culture is anti-Christian, anti-church, anti-Christ. Listen, you ask me, I'll tell you, California's scary. Is it not? Scary. We're the leader in the nation of this bizarre movement away from anything of any value at all and anything that would glorify God. But don't move to Texas. Chuckle a little more, would you? Who wants to go to Texas? Have you been there? 12 hours of sagebrush. Maybe Florida. I get it. The rest of the nation is not before. Listen, you need to understand this. Wherever the Lord takes you, new laws legislating your verbal response to moral issues are going to result in your persecution. It's coming. There's no political party that's going to stop Romans 1 and God giving people over to lust and homosexuality and a depraved mind. There's nothing stopping God, right? So what's the answer? Before he gives this description of the decline and the outpouring of God's wrath, he tells you how to solve that in verse 16. He says this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What God did on our behalf by sending His Son Jesus Christ to die in our place, rise from the dead, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Those who put, listen, all their hope in moving away or in political solutions are ashamed of the gospel. Let me say it again so you don't misquote me. Those who put all their hope in moving away or political change are ashamed of the gospel. The darker the culture gets, the brighter the gospel shines. And the church is God's plan and the gospel that Jesus Christ, God himself, was sent to earth as the God-man, bearing the wrath that we deserve, taking the punishment that should have fallen us for all eternity, took that, then rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and doing that on our behalf. He did the work totally. We just respond by faith. He justifies this. That gospel alone has the power to transform lives. That is the message. And finally, what will sink you as a Christian or sink our church, letter D, not having confidence 
in God's empowerment as you're dependently obedient. If we trust Christ, depend on the Holy Spirit, live obedient to His Word, the Lord will empower us to do the incredible. Will you choose to believe it? Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or even imagine, even think about, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory where? In the what? Church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations, that's this generation, the next generation, the next generation, FBC, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is sound, it's true, and Father, that you have the answers that we desperately need uh, to guide us through stormy seas. Father, you want to enrich us, you want to demonstrate yourself, you want to show yourself the darker things get, that the brighter the light of the gospel shines through us. We pray that we individually and corporately might be that church that remains true to your word true to dependence upon your spirit, true to giving you all the glory for what you'll do, and true to seeing you do amazing things beyond us that we can't even imagine, and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. Thank you, praise you, we love you, and we are so thankful for you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.